Dengerin. Check, check, check. I hear something. Which mic am I on? The pulpit. Oh, man, I can't move again. All right. I got a new cord for this bad boy, and I thought it was going to work, but one of these days, God will set me free from the pulpit. All right. So God is the, God is the first and truest humanist. And rather than being an angry old man with a white beard in the sky ready to get mad if you have too much fun or laugh. We see that God is about our flourishing. He's passionate about his glory spreading as we flourish in a relationship with him. A human flourishing, I think, is a really beautiful idea. I'm excited to be talking about it for a long time as we go through Matthew because every single human on earth wants to flourish. There's no one who says, yeah, I'd, re- I'd like to wither and die. And on some deep level, there's a belief for everyone that humans should flourish. When we see humans not flourishing, that just strikes us as wrong. We don't like that. And so every religion, every political ideology, every economic philosophy, it stems from this common goal of flourishing. It's just a question of how do we do it? How do we flourish as humans? The good news is we don't, as Christians, by the grace of God, we don't have to wonder which philosophy to follow. We can follow Jesus. Jesus says it really clear in John 10.10, that he came in order that we may have life to the full. Jesus is for us. He loves us. He's inviting us to flourish in the only way that humans can flourish. There's only one way that humans can flourish out of all the competing ideas, and it's this grace-based, intimate relationship with Jesus and his bride, the church. The only way that we can flourish is this grace-based, intimate relationship with Jesus and his bride, the church. And it's important to keep this human flourishing framework in mind as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and really all of Matthew, because Jesus says some hard things, some things that are kind of intimidating. And if you're like me, growing up in the church for most of my life, I read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus, and really most of the Bible, like, God and Jesus were kind of frustrated and frowning a lot. Like, I knew he died for me. I knew he loved me, but it was kind of because he had to, because he's God. Uh, he didn't really like me uh, or, or want to have done that. But we see that Jesus, he's not frowning at us. He's not frustrated with us, but he came to give us life to the full. And then he does give us commands, we see, uh, so that his joy might be in us, so that we can experience his love and our joy might be full, that we, we obey his commands to flourish, not to earn his approval. And so today, in our sermon text, Jesus and his love and compassion towards us, he calls us away from the death trap of performing to please people. Jesus, his words here, the, the heart behind them, is not to make us feel bad, but to call us away from the toxicity of living in a performance mentality to please other people, to meet their expectations. He's not mad. He's not frustrated. He's looking at us like a loving parent to their child, saying, hey, don't eat the dirt. Try this apple. Hey, that, that salt water, it's not going to quench your thirst. My first point uh, to set the scene as we look at this idea of performance is we're looking at performance and wholeness. 
And before we get to our sermon text, look at the verse right before it in Matthew 5, 48. It says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you unpack that word perfect in, in the original language, it, it has a, a lot more connotation towards the meaning of wholeness. Be whole as your Father is whole. Be fully and holy yourself just like God is perfectly himself. God is never fronting. God's never faking it or being something that he's not. He's not performing his, God, his godness. He simply is God. So Jesus, he says, be whole, be complete as your heavenly Father is complete or whole. Because it's what you were made for. Now look in verse 1. So right after he says, be whole, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is, who is in heaven. Be whole and don't fake it. Be whole and don't perform for other people. For them to see you and reward you. There, there's a way of living, Jesus says, that is not flourishing. And it's where we're living like actors. We're performing for others. And in this context, he's talking specifically of spiritual activity. We're going to get to giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. And those aren't the only three things that you might do as a performance to, to other people, to get other people's approval. But I think he, he goes with these ones because they're kind of the bread and butter for the culture he's talking to. They're just kind of these uh, commonly accepted good behaviors to do. And if there's any kind of activity that we might consider good, whether we're doing it for the right reasons or not, he, it would be these ones. He's like, if you're giving to the poor, that's good. It's okay if, you know, if your heart's not right is what religious people might say. Like, at least it's happening. At least the behavior has been modified. But Jesus is saying that's not flourishing. At the end of the day, you're not whole if what's ever going on in your heart is different from what's going on outside. If you're just kind of white-knuckling this behavior, but your heart is, is, is dead and dry or hates it. You're living less than a human life. Humans aren't meant to live on stage their whole life and perform. We're meant to be, to flourish. To be fully ourselves as God made us to his glory is to have whole souls. And when we perform, we're divided. We're not whole. Jesus is getting at the idea of vanity. When you are about other people, when you uh, are thinking about what other people want you to do, when that is the driving factor on whether your emotions are high or low, then that's vanity. That's my second point, performance and vanity. Now, vanity is not just for extroverted class clown type people that are always have to be the center of attention and, and, and want to do everything. Introverted, super shy people can be just as vain because what vanity means is empty. It means a void. You're empty in your soul. A vain person has this void that they're, they're, they're kind of falling into. Your sense of self is gone. And so people in this place tend to be big and loud and, and try to make up for the void by being funny and getting people to notice them. Or they get shy and insecure because they, they feel empty inside. and they, don't, they wouldn't put anything out there because they don't have anything to put out there. And if we did put something out there, then we would die of embarrassment because we'd be so shy if it wasn't well-received. 
If flourishing is when our souls are whole, vanity is when we have a hole in our souls. See what I did there? D- different spelling. I should have put it on the PowerPoint. But if flourishing is when we are whole, H-O-L-E, vanity is when we have a whole H-O-L-E, in our souls. Jesus is talking about this hole in our souls, this vanity void, and these three spiritual activities. It's the void that we, that we all have to some degree. We might not necessarily be as inclined as others to, to performance, but we all have it to some degree. And listen, I don't think I need to convince you that it's just a miserable, stressful, lonely way to live life, trying to perform for other people, to, to have your, your emotional well-being just be this stock market chart, ups and downs of, of how well people are approving you. He talks about giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting, how to do these things and not be a hypocrite. This word hypocrite is super interesting because we tend to think of hypocrite like a, you know, obese nutritionist or something like that. Like, what? You're talking about fitness, but you're not actually fit or something like that. But the essence of the word hypocrite, that that really just be more like a fool or something like that, that would uh, obese nutritionist. Where the word hypocrite here is kind of what we've been saying. It's an actor. You look at the, the language in the original text. It's someone who's performing for an audience. And an actor, by definition, is not themselves. They're literally putting on a character, a wearing a mask, being a costume, a, a disguise. So he says, be whole like your heavenly father. Don't be an actor. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't put on a front. Jesus is calling us away from a stressful Divided life, trying to figure out what role to play based on who we're around. The, the exhaustion of being on stage. And instead be at peace as a whole, H-O-L-E, beloved child of God. Let's look at the first example in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by other, truly others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is saying here is that these three examples, again, are not the only ways that we can live as hypocrites. But they're par for the course, things he would expect his followers to already be doing. And what he's doing is showing his followers how to get the maximum benefit, the maximum reward from doing these spiritual activities. The, the full joy and satisfaction. It's like working out. It'd be such a bummer if you were super good about waking up at 5, getting your selfie on the Instagrams, rise and grind, and then you put on some music at the gym, and you get some chalk on your hands, do like one pump, and start chanting and getting everybody to look at you in the gym. So others will see you, but you're not going to get shape from selfies and chalk on your hands and one bench press. Jesus is encouraging us to seek rewards. That's not the problem. It's, let's do it in a way that we're getting the right ones. Jesus wants us to be motivated to do things for what we get out of them. It's kind of a scandalous idea, but we see that clear in, in, in the text. And I think maybe in our particular brand of Christianity, we, we're, we're, we're weak on this biblical truth that we should live to get rewards because... There's a branch of philosophy or uh, just a, a culture where it's only virtuous 
if you don't get anything out of it. Because if you get anything out of it, then you're not really being virtuous. It's like, it's only holy if it hurts kind of Christianity. But I just don't see that in Jesus' way. There is sacrifice. There is hurt. But even Jesus himself, when he made the ultimate sacrifice, the scripture says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So he's not criticizing the hypocrites for trying to get a reward. He's saying that they're going after the wrong one. It's not bad to try to get a reward, to give to the needy for a reward. But if you're doing it for the praise of other people, then you're missing out. Missing out of the reward from God. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the, the idea of natural and unnatural rewards. For example, money is not a natural reward f- from, for love. So if a man marries a woman be, for her money because she's rich, we, we're repulsed at that. And that, that's right, because it's unnatural. That's not a, a normal cause and effect. But if a man delights in a woman and cherishes her and wants to commit his life to her and enjoy intimacy and companionship for the rest of his life, that's a good thing. That's a reward that he should seek in getting married. So if we want to give to the needy in order to get praise of people, we're like a gold digger. We're trying to get unnatural rewards from a, a spiritual behavior. He says, to really get the reward that your heart is longing for, this, this feeling of approval, of significance, is to give in secret where your father sees for an audience of one. He's asking the question, why are you giving? For others to see or because you're so satisfied in God, your father, secure in your identity as a son or daughter of God that you can give generously to those in need. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Which is a weird idea that he's getting at. But he's speaking in hyperbole. Because there's an element in what he's saying that even if others don't know, we shouldn't even really dwell on it a lot ourselves. It's kind of the sense that you're looking to make yourself feel good with your giving. Even if others don't know, you kind of know. You have a bad week, so you give some money to the homeless guy on the corner. It's like a penance kind of thing. I'm going to give to the poor because I don't feel good about myself. That's the same kind of hole in our souls that we're trying to meet. It's a heart that hasn't experienced or fully experienced the transforming acceptance of God's love in Christ by grace. So we don't need to make penance by we yell at our wife, give money to the homeless person. Look at verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you will reward you. The big question in this text is what is the reward? What is the reward that Jesus wants us to get from our father? Why do we give? Why does Jesus call us to give to the needy? Why does scripture call us to worship God through giving to his church? And I know this is a super sensitive topic. The church doesn't have a great reputation for handling money. There's stories of embezzlement or six million dollar parsonages or whatever out there but you just can't you can't read the bible and you can't obey jesus without giving money it's just kind of a part of the whole package 
Is it because God's up there yelling at his accounting angel about the books and wondering how he's going to build his kingdom on a tight budget? That's not it. God doesn't need anything from us. The call to give in Scripture, both to the needy and to the church, doesn't come because God needs anything from us. It's like a kid that your, your son takes money out of your wallet and buys you a present with it. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's still your stuff at the, at the end of the day. Instead, God calls us to give for us, for our own sake. When we open our hands on our money, we have a very real, very intense opportunity to actually live in the reality, to experience the promises of God that he says, I will provide for you. We're doing this outward act. We're embodying this outward act with our, with our money, with our hands, so that to help our hearts believe that it's all his anyways, and he's, and he's holding us. And that even our ability to earn our money, our bodies, our brains, our jobs, our health, these are gifts. So if we're giving to impress people, then we're missing out on the reward of actually trusting God, of living in this uh, spirit of gratitude for the money that he's given us, our ability to earn it, the work that we have, and ultimately the promise that he will take care of us. And if we're only giving to get others to like us or think well of us, then we, we miss out on just the joy of joining God and meeting other people's needs. As Christians, the Spirit of God dwells in us, and we are his presence on the earth. And, and there's an incredible joy in being a part of his work and meeting people's needs when they have them. Look at the next example, verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is getting to the heart behind prayer. There's a way to pray, pray as an actor, so folks are impressed with you, your, the, the length of your prayer or the, your, your language and devotedness. It's using this spiritual rhythm. Uh, to get people to like you or approve of you. But just think how tragically sad that is on a relational level. Imagine if when Camille and I were at home alone, I barely talked to her until things were really bad. But when I was around other people, I was all flowery, my cherished wife, my precious rose. It's disgusting to think about that. I don't think Camille would like that. But but why do I talk to Camille? Because I love her, and I enjoy her, and I need her, and I value her opinion, and I want to know what, how she's experiencing life and the things that are happening in our, in our life together. I want intimacy with her. The reward of prayer is intimacy. It's a, it's a relationship. I'm talking to Camille just so people are impressed with how flowery, flowery my language is to my wife, and it's missing the whole point of communication in a marriage. Consider the the tragic cycle of emptiness that this would cause. Because if this hole in our soul is satisfied by intimacy with God, believing that he really loves us, that he's looking at us right now with affection in Christ, 
but then we're praying in such a way to where we don't get any intimacy because we're trying to get other people to like us, then that prayer performance keeps us from the intimacy that would actually fill the hole in our souls, the, the void. Being still before God our Father as his children, and praying, communing with him is where we're filled, where we're rewarded. Now again, Jesus is getting at the heart. He's looking at people who use prayer in a, in a performance, legalistic way, and one of the tragic things people can do with this text is be like, oh, I need to get a closet. I can only pray in a closet. That's not what he's saying, because clearly Jesus prays out loud and with other people and asks God, ask God for things. Praying out loud with your church family is a beautiful thing. We do it a lot here. But it's not to impress people. It's to lift each other up and encourage each other and seek, seek intimacy with God together as his children. And, and I think another way that we see vanity, this emptiness in prayer is is you know not being at a place where you can pray out loud and maybe you're in a, a, a spot where you're you're new to the faith and you're still trying to figure that out that there's there's time for that but just it'd be worth sitting with the question how do i feel at the thought of praying out loud with my brothers and sisters is it is it because it feels like a performance that i don't think i can do a very good job at ask, ask god to, to heal that part of your of your heart jesus in this passage, next goes into some instruction on prayer that we'll spend a couple weeks in. Uh, but to stick with this idea of religious performance, skip down to, to the next example in verses 16 through 18, where he talks about fasting. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is the, the beautiful, powerful rhythm that God has called us to, where we periodically abstain from food so that spiritual realities become more real to us. We periodically abstain from food so that spiritual realities become more real to us. It's, it's really simple. And we see really clearly how the embodiment, the fact that we're flesh and blood, and that we also have souls, it, it connect. That what, what happens with one affects the other. But the vanity void, the soul in our holes, sorry, the hole in our, yeah, the hole, yeah, the hole in our, I'm going to move on. It can make anything good that God uh, that God designs and twist it. Now, to the, the culture Jesus was talking to directly, fasting was, was very common. It was, in this culture, it was like, I think it was Monday and Thursdays. Pretty much everybody fasted. And then there were other, like, corporate fasts that would happen throughout the year in their, in their religious calendar. And what the hypocrites were doing is making it super clear how spiritual they were with their fasting, looking all haggard and weak one scholar said, historically, it, it seemed like there was a, a practice of like rubbing ashes on their face, so they looked extra pale and scruffy. They're taking the spiritual rhythm of trying to commune with God, 
and, and literally playing a part by putting on a mask, by putting on a disguise of, uh, of looking extra scraggly. So that people are like, wow, they must be so holy. They're, they're fasting so hard. A fasting is an emptying of our stomachs in order to be filled. And of course, there's other kinds of fast. It could be empty of your schedule or lots of different things. But it's a, a doing without so that there's room for other stuff, namely satisfaction in Jesus. So when we're literally hungry, it gives us this embodied experience of what Jesus is talking about when he says earlier in chapter 5, hunger and blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after right, righteousness. That, that hunger pain isn't, isn't the, the, the deal, but it is a, a reminder, an invitation to pray, Father, Grow my hunger for you, for righteousness, the way I am hungry for food right now. Father, grow my hunger for righteousness for you in the way that I'm hungering for food right now. And you're, in secret, your Father sees and rewards you with yourself, or with himself. When we fast in order to be satisfied in God, to get him that we're not about performing and of course again literally speaking it might be tricky to keep it a total secret if you're married and you're not eating your spouse might know but the question is are you trying to impress people are you seeking the kingdom of god and then it's righteousness so these are the questions that jesus puts before us looking at our heart in, our, in these spiritual practices, but this week has been really heavy for me uh, as I've studied this passage and prayed about what God might have for us as a church family. Because when I, you know, when I preach, first and foremost, I want to be faithful to God and his word, preach the, the whole counsel of God's word. And second, I want to preach to us here. Like, there, there's a reason why we don't pipe in the video of a way better preacher every Sunday. Uh, it's because they're not the pastor here. It's not, not, not who God called here to pastor. So I, when I preach, I want to preach to us. You know, we, we are God's church here in this, in this place. Uh, it, scripture says I'll, I'll give an account. Pastors give an account for the souls of their church members. This week has been really heavy for me because I feel like there's two sides to this issue of performing. There's the performance and vanity and then there's performance and obedience. This is my last point. And I just, all week I just was wondering, are we a church that is just too zealous with these spiritual practices? That we're just trying to perform in church? Or, or is it, is there more of a, an obedience issue? It's not that we're doing too much with the wrong hearts, that we're, we're not really doing much of anything. I wonder if these spiritual practices, involvement in church, are kind of an afterthought, a side hustle, with our main jam going on everywhere else. And I wonder if it's a generational thing, you know, at one point in our church history here, like this one here, in the front or back of the hymnal, there was like a list of rules. Like, 
don't drink or go to movies or play cards. Like literally, like if, if what I've been told is true, that, that's like in our church heritage. Like performance was actually written down. But I, if you were born after maybe 1975, that's an arbitrary cutoff, and you grew up in youth groups where legalism was and probably justly ridiculed because it's not about rules, man. It's about relationship. Which is, again, true. But then movies we watch, music we listen to, church attendance, scripture reading. We don't have to be serious about that because it's not about rules. Or maybe in our easy, affluent culture, because even for the, the worst of us, times aren't that bad in the realm of human history. So we just need a, enough of Christianity to, to help us out of hard times, but, but not actually make us weird or, or make any claims on our life. To the point where we actually try or be disciplined in our relationship with God. To obey Jesus to the point of being different from the people around us. Whatever the reason is, when I think of my life, when I think of our church family, I, I, I'm not sure that a lot of us are going to this religious behavior to, to fill the void with approval. I feel like we're going to food and Netflix and buying stuff and careers and Facebook just to dis- distract us, distract ourselves from the void. And in our current day and age, where we're largely post-Christian, I'm not sure religious activity actually gets that much approval any, anymore. And so we're just on to, to other things. So let's just ask ourselves the question, when was the last time we intentionally gave to the needy? What's our, what's our prayer life like? Has... Has fasting even crossed our radar in the last year, the last five years? Maybe it has, and that's great. But I guess what I'm saying is that my hope in this passage is that, our, that this one word would be our takeaway, and it's, and it's the word when. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast— Because it can be easy to, to see this and, and just kind of get paralyzed. Well, I don't want to give to the needy because I, it might be wrong, or I might do it from the wrong motives. Or we see others with more than us, and so we don't think that we're actually that rich. Or we don't want to be hypocritical, so we just don't pray out loud. And geez, food? Oh my goodness. Food is our only comfort in life and death. So that we scoff at any kind of restriction that religion would put on that you know we're not we're, we're not jewish we can we're not have to eat kosher or anything like that which is true or sometimes i wonder if we're we kind of do this barter game with god with religious behavior we pick or pick or choose one or two spiritual things and we focus on those major in those while neglecting the others like oftentimes people who are the most generous with the needy the most patient and gracious with the poor tend to be really overweight because that's their, that's their treat, that's their, their comfort in, in all the good work that they're doing. 
We serve in the church well, faithfully, but we won't spend time with God alone. Or we'll serve in the church so we don't give any money, don't have to give money, or don't feel bad about giving money. Do you see the heart issue, how the, the hole, the, the void is there? And we're just trying to cover it up with, with something instead of being whole in all these areas. And sure, some of these are going to come more easy to us than others, and that's okay. There's space to grow, to acknowledge where we're weak, and then try to grow there. But it was just so heavy to me that Jesus is assuming, he's not, he's not even saying, go do this. He's saying, when you do it. He's assuming that we're already doing these things. And yes, he's giving us the invitation to the real rewards, to to, to not do them for other people. But we have to be doing these things first. This is not a wait till you aren't a hypocrite kind of thing and then start obeying Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a situation where we want to press into these things, press into what Jesus says and do them with a, a posture of openness toward, towards God, asking him to, to, to refine our hearts from any kind of false motive or people-pleasing, to refine our hearts so that we are doing these things with pure motives, to get him, to experience more of him. So much of growth, I think, is just showing up and taking the next step. And so we're going to talk about these three things, uh, giving to needy prayer and, and fasting over the next few weeks as we continue through the text. And I just encourage you to really dive into them. And I, and I was trying to think of just real simple ways, real simple next steps that we could, we could just take a stab at it. it. It might not be perfect, but we just do it open-handedly, asking God to correct our steps and refine us. And so here are just three, three ways that we can obey Jesus in these things. Before we, we can address the heart issue, we have to be actually doing them. So outside the church office, down the ramp or the stairs, there's a little uh, black drop box that is newly posted to the wall there. And I'd in- encourage you to give to our benevolence fund in that box. The benevolence fund is separate from our general fund. It doesn't pay my salary or any of the bills here. It's purely uh, for people in need. It's overseen by the deacons. And n- none of it goes to anything with building this church's kingdom. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to, uh, to, to, to give sacrificially to that and, and, and drop either a cash or check in there to the, to the benevolent fund. And just see what God does. Ask God to, to refine your heart from that. And how fun will it be to, to see what God does with, the, with those funds that we're able to contribute. What, what people might we be able to bless or show the love of Christ to with those things. And then for the, the next three weeks, consider coming to our family prayer time on Sunday mornings. Just three weeks, that's all I'm saying. We, we do it every week, but just for the next three weeks. At 9.30 on Sunday morning, we meet in the room across the, the lobby there, and, and we pray. We read some scripture, and we respond in prayer. It's very simple, but it's time to be with our Father together and just make this one hour, 45 minutes, uh, time to be with our Father together. And then lastly, I'd encourage you to fast from lunch tomorrow. If Monday doesn't work, pick another day. The point is not the day. And if that's easy for you to do, try a 24-hour fast. Go dinner to dinner. 
then as you're hungry, just whisper the prayer. Father, let me hunger for you. Let me hunger for righteousness like I'm hungering for food. Father, let me hunger for you and your righteousness like I'm hungering for food. Let's just give it a, give it a stab. Let's try to obey Jesus in these things. My prayer is that we'd leave the misery of performance and we'd move towards the joy of obedience. We'd make obedience to our King and Savior, the one who loved us to death, a priority in our lives. and We'd live in the reality of his love when we obey his commands. He doesn't say these things to be mean. He says it because he loves us, because he knows that without them we, we wouldn't flourish. Would you do these things with me this week? Let me pray. Oh, Father, would you be near to us in this heavy text and these heavy words and just Jesus going straight for the heart and these things that are so core to us with our money, our food, and our prayer, our times alone, and stillness, which we have so little of these days. These are just such sensitive areas of our life, Father, and I feel so... I feel so nervous talking about them like this, but would you just call us in peace uh, in, in your love to, to obey? I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to convict us where we're doing things to meet the expectations of others, where we're uh, trying to perform out of the, the void we have in our souls, that the, the part of our hearts that are not satisfied by, by your love yet. Would you show us that, Father? Search us and know us and try our anxious hearts. And lead us into life with Jesus. In his name, amen. Please stand with us.